The Halfling's Gem, Chapter 10, The Weight of a King's Mantle The halfling hung by his ankles, suspended upside down with chains above a cauldron of boiling liquid. Not water, though, but something darker, a red hue, perhaps. Blood, perhaps? The crank creaked, and the halfling dropped an inch closer. His face was contorted, his mouth wide, as if in a scream. But no screams could be heard, just the groans of the crank and a sinister laugh from an unseen torturer. The misty scene shifted, and the crank came into view, worked slowly by a single hand that seemed unattached to anything else. There was a pause in the descent. Then an evil voice laughed one final time. The hand jerked quickly, sending the crank spinning. A scream resounded, piercing and cutting, a cry of agony, a cry of death. Sweat stung Bruner's eyes even before he had fully opened them. He wiped the wetness from his face and rolled his head, trying to shake away the terrible images and adjust his thoughts to his surroundings. He was in the ivy mansion, in a comfortable bed, in a comfortable room. The fresh candles that he had set out burned low. They hadn't helped. This night had been like the others. Another nightmare. Bruner rolled over and sat up on the side of his bed. Everything was as it should be. The mithril armor and golden shield lay across a chair beside the room's single dresser. The axe that he had used to cut his way out of the Dorgar lair rested easily against the wall beside Drizzt's scimitar and two helmets sat atop the dresser. The battered one-horned helm that had carried the dwarf through the adventures of the last two centuries and the crown of the king of Mithril Hall ringed by a thousand glittering gemstones. But to Bruner's eyes, all was not as it should be. He looked to the window and the darkness of the night beyond. Alas, all he could see was the reflection of the candlelit room, the crown and armor of the king of Mithril Hall. It had been a tough week for Bruner. All the days had been filled with the excitement of the times, of talk of the armies coming from Citadel Adbar and Icewind Dale to reclaim Mithril Hall. The dwarf's shoulders ached from being patted so many times by Harples and other visitors to the mansion, all anxious to congratulate him in advance for the impending return to his throne. But Bruner had wandered through the last few days absently, playing a role thrust upon him before he could truly appreciate it. It was a time to prepare for the adventure Bruner had fantasized about since his exile nearly two centuries before. His father had been king of Mithril Hall, his father before him, and back to the beginning of Clan Battlehammer. Bruner's birthright demanded that he lead the armies and retake Mithril Hall, that he sit in the throne he had been born to possess. But it was in the very chambers of the ancient dwarven homeland that Bruner Battlehammer had realized the truth of what was important to him. Over the course of the last decade, four very special companions had come into his life. Not one of them was a dwarf. The friendship the five had forged was bigger than a dwarven kingdom and more precious to Bruner than all the mithril in the world. The realization of his fantasy conquest seemed empty to him. The moments of the night now held Bruner's heart and his concentration. The dreams, never the same but always with the same terrible conclusion, did not fade with the light of day. Another one? Came a soft call from the door. Bruner looked over his shoulder to see Caterbury peeking in on him. Bruner knew that he didn't have to answer. He put his head down in one hand and rubbed his eyes. About Regis again? Asked Caterbury, moving closer. Bruner heard the door close softly. Rumble belly, 
Bruner softly corrected, using the nickname he had tagged on the halfling who had been his closest friend for nearly a decade. Bruner swung his legs back over the bed. I should be with him, he said gruffly, or at least with the drow and wolf car looking for him. Your kingdom awaits, Catterbury reminded him, more to dispel his guilt than to soften his belief in where he truly belonged, a belief that the young woman wholeheartedly shared. Your kin from Icewind Dale will be here in a month, the army from Adbar in two. Aye, but we can't be going to the halls till the winter's past. Catterbury looked around for some way to deflect the sinking conversation. You'll wear it well, she said cheerfully, indicating the bejeweled crown. Which, Brunner retorted, a sharp edge to his tongue. Catterbury looked at the dented helm, pitiful beside the glorious one, and nearly snorted aloud. But she turned to Brunner before she commented, and the stern look stamped upon the dwarf's face as he studied the old helmet told her that Brunner had not asked in jest. At that moment, Catterbury realized Brunner saw the one-horned helmet as infinitely more precious than the crown he was destined to wear. They're halfway to Calumport, Catterbury remarked, sympathizing with the dwarf's desires. Maybe more. Aye, and few boats will be leaving Waterdeep with the winter coming on, Brunner muttered grimly, echoing the same arguments Canterbury had leveled on him during his second mornings in the Ivy Mansion when he first mentioned his desire to go after his friends. We've a million preparations before us, said Canterbury, stubbornly holding her cheerful tone. Sure in the winter will pass quickly, and we'll get to the halls in time for Dresden Wolfgar and Regis's return. Brunner's visage did not soften. His eyes locked on the broken helmet, but his mind wandered beyond the vision, back to the fateful scene at Garum's Gorge. He had at least made peace with Regis before they were separated. Brunner's recollections blew away from him suddenly. He snapped a wry glance upon Caterbury. "'You think they might be back in time for the fighting?' Caterbury shrugged. "'If they put right back out,' she replied, curious at the question." for she knew that Brunner had more in mind than fighting beside Drizzt and Wolfgar in the battle for Mithril Hall. They can be covering many miles over the southern land, even in the winter. Brunner bounced off the bed and rushed for the door, scooping up the one-horn helmet and fitting it onto his head as he went. Middle of the night, Caterbury gawked after him. She jumped up and followed him into the hall. Brunner never slowed. He marched straight to Harkle Harple's door and banged on it loudly enough to wake everyone in the wing of the house. Harkle! he roared. Caterbury knew better than to even try to calm him. She just shrugged apologetically to each curious head that popped into the hall to take a look. Finally, Harkle, clad only in a nightshirt and ball-tipped cap and holding a candle, opened the door. Brunner shoved himself into the room, Caterbury in tow. Can you make me a chariot? the dwarf demanded. Uh, what? Harkle yawned, trying futilely to brush his sleep away. Uh, 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 a chariot? A chariot! Brunner growled. Of fire! Like the Lady Illustrial bringed me here in! A chariot of fire! Well, Harkle stammered, I, I, I've never... Can you do it? Brunner roared, having no patience now for unfocused blubbering. Uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, maybe... Harkle proclaimed as confidently as he could. Uh, actually, the spell is a lustrial specialty. No one here has ever... He stopped, 
feeling Brunner's frustrated glare boring into him. The dwarf stood straight-legged, one bare heel grinding into the floor, and his gnarled arms crossed over his chest, the stubby fingers of one hand tapping an impatient rhythm on his knotted biceps. "'I shall speak to the lady in the morning,' Harkel assured him. "'I am certain—' "'Illustrial still here?' Brunner interrupted. "'Why, yes,' Harkel replied. "'She stayed on a few extra. Where is she?' Brunner demanded. "'Down the hall.' "'Which room?' "'I shall take you to her in the morn,' Harkel began. Brunner grabbed the front of the wizard's nightshirt and brought him down to the dwarf's eye level. Brunner proved stronger even with his nose, for the long, pointy thing pressed Harkel's nose flat against one of his cheeks. Brunner's eyes did not blink, and he spoke each word of his question slowly and distinctly, just the way he wanted the answer. "'Which room?' "'Green door beside the banister,' Harkel gulped. Brunner gave the wizard a good-hearted wink and let him go. The dwarf turned right past Caterbury, returning her amused smile with a determined shake of his head, and burst into the hall. "'Oh, he should not disturb the Lady Illustrial at this late hour,' Harkel protested. Caterbury could not help but laugh. "'So stop him yourself.' Harkel listened to the dwarf's heavy footsteps resounding down the hall. Brunner's bare feet thudded on the wooden floor like bouncing stones. No, Harkel answered her offer, his smile widening to match his own. I, I think not. Abruptly awakened in the night, the Lady Illustrial appeared no less beautiful, her silvery mane somehow mystically connected to the soft glow of the evening. Brunner composed himself when he saw the lady, remembering her station and his manners. Oh, begging the lady's pardon, he stammered, suddenly very embarrassed by his actions. It is late, good King Brunner, Illustrial said politely, an amused smile on her face as she viewed the dwarf, dressed only in his nightshirt and broken helmet. What might have brought you to my door at this hour? What with all that's going on about, I did not even know you were in Long Saddle, Brunner explained. I would have come to see you before I left, Illustria replied, her tone still cordial. No need to disturb your sleep or mine. My thoughts weren't for goodbyes, Brunner said. I be needing a favor. Urgently? Brunner nodded emphatically. A favor I should have asked before we got here. Illustria led him into her room and closed the door behind them, realizing the seriousness of the dwarf's business. I, I need another one of them chariots, said Brunner, to take me to the south. You mean to catch your friends and aid in the search for the halfling, Illustria reasoned. Aye, I know me place. But... I cannot accompany you, Illustrial said. I have a realm to rule. It is not my place to journey unannounced to other kingdoms. I wouldn't be asking you to go, replied Brunner. Then who will drive the team? You have no experience with such magic. Brunner thought just for a moment. Harkle take me, he blurted. Illustrial couldn't hide a smirk as she thought of the possibilities for disaster. Harkel 
like so many of his Harpal kin, usually hurt himself when spellcasting. The lady knew that she would not sway the dwarf, but she felt it her duty to point out all the weaknesses of his plan. Calumport is a long way indeed, she told him. The trip there on the chariot will be speedy, but the return could take many months. Will not the true king of Mithril Hall lead the gathering armies in the fight for his throne? He will, Bruner replied, if it be possible. But me place is with me friends. I owe them at least that. You risk much. No more than they've risked for me. Many the times. Alustriel opened the door. Very well, she said, and my respect on your decision. You will prove a noble king, Bruner Battlehammer. The dwarf, for one of the few times in his life, blushed. Now go and rest, said Illustrial. I will see what I may learn this night. Meet me on the south slope of Harple Hill before the break of dawn. Bruner nodded eagerly and found his way back to his room. For the first time since he'd come to Longsaddle, he slept peacefully. Under the lightning sky of pre-dawn, Bruner and Harkel met Illustrial at the appointed spot. Harkel had eagerly agreed to the journey. He'd always wanted a crack at driving one of a lady Illustrial's famed chariots. He seemed out of place next to the battle-charged dwarf, though, wearing his wizard's robe tucked into leather-hip boots and an oddly-shaped silver helmet with fluffy white fur wings and a visor that kept flopping down over his eyes. Illustrial had not slept the rest of that night. She had been busy staring into the crystal ball the Harples had provided her, probing distant planes in search of clues to the whereabouts of Bruner's friends. She had learned much in that short time and had even made a connection of the dead mage Morkai in the spirit world to garner further information. And what she had learned disturbed her more than a little. She stood now, components in hand and awaiting the break of dawn, quietly facing the east. As the first rays of the sun peeked over the horizon, she swept them into her grasp and executed the spell. Minutes later, a flaming chariot and two fiery horses appeared on the hillside, magically suspended an inch from the ground. The licks of their flames sent tiny streams of smoke rising from the bedewed grass. To Calimport, Harko proclaimed, rushing over to the enchanted carriage. Nay, Alustrio corrected. Bruner turned a confused glance on her. Your friends are not yet in the Empire of the Sands, the lady explained. They are at sea, and will find grave danger this day. Set your course to the southwest, to the sea, then true south with the coast in sight. She tossed a heart-shaped locket to Bruner. The dwarf fumbled it open and found a picture of Drisduarden inside. The locket will warm when you approach the ship that carries your friends, Illustrial said. I created it many weeks ago, that I might have known if your group approached Silvery Moon on your return from Mithril Hall. She avoided Bruner's probing gaze, knowing the myriad of questions that must have been going through the dwarf's mind. Quietly, almost as if embarrassed, she added, I should like it returned. Bruner kept his sly remarks to himself. He knew of the growing connection between Lady Illustrial and Drizzt. It became clearer and clearer every day. You'll get it back, he assured her. 
he scooped the locket up into his fist and moved to join Harkle. Tarry not, Alustriel told them. Their need is pressing this day. Wait, came a call from the hill. All three turned to see Caterbury, fully outfitted for the road, with Talmaril, the magical bow of Anariel, that she had recovered from the ruins of Mithril Hall, slung easily over her shoulder. She ran down to the back of the chariot. You weren't meaning to leave me so, she asked Bruner. Bruner couldn't look her in the eye. He had indeed meant to leave without so much as a goodbye to his daughter. Bah, he snorted. You'd have only tried to stop me going. Never I would, Catterby growled right back at him. Me thinking that you're doing right. But you'd do righter if you'd move over and make room for me. Bruner shook his head emphatically. I've as much a right as yourself, Catterby protested. Bah, Bruner snorted again. Drizzt and Rumblebelly are me truest friends. And mine. And Wolfgar's been akin to a son to me. Bruner shot back, thinking he'd won the round. And a mite bit more than that to me, Caterbury retorted. If he gets back from the south. Caterbury didn't even need to remind Bruner that she had been the one who introduced him to Drizzt. She had defeated all the dwarf's arguments. Move aside, Bruner Battlehammer, and make room. I've as much at stake as yourself, and I'm meaning to come along. Who'll be seeing to the armies? Bruner asked. The Harples will put them up. They won't be marching to the halls until we're back, or until the spring at least. But if both of you go and do not return, Harkle interjected, letting the thought hang over them for a moment. You are the only ones who know the way. Bruner saw Catterbury's crestfallen look and realized how deeply she desired to join him on his quest, and he knew she was right in coming, for she had as much at stake in the chase along the Southland as he. He thought for a moment, suddenly shifting to Catterbury's side in the debate. "'The lady knows the way,' he said, indicating Illustrial. Illustrial nodded. "'I do,' she replied. "'And I would gladly show the armies to the halls, but the chariot will carry only two riders. Bruner's sigh was as loud as Caterbury's. He shrugged helplessly at his daughter. Better that you stay, he said softly. I'll bring them back for you. Caterbury wouldn't let go so easily. When the fighting starts, she said, and soaring it will, would you rather have had Harkle and his spells beside you, or me and me bow? Bruner glanced casually at Harkle, and immediately saw the young woman's logic. The wizard stood at the reins of the chariot, trying to find some way to keep the visor of his helmet up on his brow. Finally, Harkle gave up and just tilted his head back far enough so he could see under the visor. Here, you dropped a piece of it, Bruner said to him. That's why it won't stay up. Harkle turned and saw Bruner pointing to the ground off the back of the chariot. He shuffled around beside Bruner and bent over, trying to see what the dwarf was pointing at. As Harkle bent to look, the weight of his silver helmet, which actually belonged to his cousin much larger than he, toppled him over and left him sprawled face down on the lawn. In the same moment, Bruner swept Caterbury into the chariot beside him. Oh, drats, Harkle whined. I would have so loved to go. The lady'll make you another one to fly, Bruner said to comfort him. Harkle looked to Illustrial. Tomorrow morning, Illustrial agreed quite amused by the whole scene. Then, to Bruner, she asked, Can you guide the chariot? 
as well as he be, me guess, the dwarf proclaimed, grabbing up the fiery reins. Hold on, girl, or half a world to cross. He snapped the reins, and the chariot lifted into the morning sky, cutting a fiery streak across the blue-gray haze of dawn. The wind rushed past them as they shot into the west, the chariot rocking wildly from side to side, up and down. Bruner fought frantically to hold his course. Caterbury fought frantically just to hold on. The sides wobbled, the back dipped and climbed, and once they even spun in a complete vertical circle, though it happened so fast, luckily, that neither of the riders had time to fall out. A few minutes later, a single thundercloud loomed ahead of them. Bruner saw it, and Caterbury yelled a warning, but the dwarf hadn't mastered the subtleties of driving the chariot well enough to do anything about their course. They blew through the darkness, leaving a hissing steam tail in their wake, and rocketed out above the cloud. And then Bruner, his face glistening with wetness, found the measure of the reins. He leveled off the chariot's course and put the rising sun behind his right shoulder. Caterbury, too, found her footing, though she still clung tightly to the chariot's rail with one hand and to the dwarf's heavy cloak with the other. The silver dragon rolled over onto its back lazily, riding the morning winds with its legs, all four, crossed over it and its sleepy eyes half-closed. The good dragon loved its morning glide, leaving the bustle of the world far below and catching the sun's untainted rays above the cloud level. But the dragon's marvelous orbs popped open wide when it saw the fiery streak rushing at it from the east. Thinking the flames to be the forecoming fires of an evil red dragon, the silver swooped around in a high cloud and poised to ambush the thing. But the fury left the dragon's eyes when it recognized the strange craft. A fiery chariot, with just the helm of the driver, a one-horned contraption, sticking above the front of the carriage, and a young human woman standing behind, her auburn locks flying back over her shoulders. Its huge mouth agape, the silver dragon watched as the chariot flew past. Few things piqued the curiosity of this ancient creature, who had lived so very many years, but had seriously considered following this unlikely scene. A cool breeze wafted in then, and washed all other thoughts from the silver dragon's mind. Peoples, it muttered, rolling again onto its back and shaking its head in disbelief. Caterbury and Bruner never even saw the dragon. Their eyes were fixed squarely ahead, where the wide sea was already in sight on the western horizon, blanketed by a heavy morning mist. A half hour later, they saw the high towers of Waterdeep to the north and moved out from the sword coast and over the water. Bruner, getting a better feel for the rains, swung the chariot to the south and dropped it low. Too low. Diving into the gray shroud of mist, they heard the lapping of the waves below them and the hiss of steam as their spray hit the fiery craft. Bring her up, Caterbury yelled. You're too low. Need to be low, Bruner gasped, fighting the reins. He tried to mask his incompetence, but he fully realized that they were indeed too close to the water. Struggling with all his might, he managed to bring the chariot up a few more feet and level it off. There, he boasted. Got it straight and got it low. He looked over his shoulder at Caterbury. Need to be low, he said again into her doubting expression. We have to see the darn ship to find it. Caterbury only shook her head. But then they did see a ship, not the ship, but a ship nonetheless, looming in the mist barely thirty yards ahead. Caterbury screamed. Bruner did, too, and the dwarf fell back with the reins, forcing the chariot upwards at as steep an angle as possible. The ship's deck rolled out below them. 
and the masts still towered above them. If all the ghosts of every sailor who had ever died on the sea had risen from their watery graves and sought vengeance on this particular vessel, the lookout's face would not have held a truer expression of terror. Possibly he leaped from his perch, more likely he toppled in fright, but either way, he missed the deck and dropped safely into the water at the very last second before the chariot streaked past his crow's nest and nipped the top of the mainmast. Caterbury and Bruner composed themselves and looked back to see the tip of the ship's mast burning like a single candle in the gray mist. You're too low, Caterbury reiterated. <laughs>